Welcome to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct professor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. I came across a YouTube clip from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary Chapel from November 29th, just a few days ago, with Dr. Rick Patrick. Now, Dr. Rick Patrick is a pastor in Alabama. He is the executive director, if you will, of the Connect 316 organization, which is the traditionalist group within the Southern Baptist Convention. He hosts the Connect 316 conferences. He also hosts the SBC Today website. And so if there is one organization that is basically, um, I, wanna, I don't want to say they're anti-Calvinistic. I want to be kind, but they are the one organization that is pushing back very aggressively against the, on, or the uprise of Calvinism within the Southern Baptist Convention. And I don't often look at chapel messages. I mean, I graduated from Southern Seminary, and I don't even sometimes go listen to those chapel messages. So this is not something that I normally do. But I would think that if you're going to go preach a message in chapel at a Southern Baptist seminary, you would exposit a text of Scripture. You would preach from a text. You would preach a message. And, 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 and I don't fault Rick Patrick for not doing that, but that's not what he did. Now, let me just say a few prefatory remarks. Um, I have had um, communication and correspondence with Rick Patrick through the SBC Today blog, and he's always been very kind, been very gracious. We've obviously disagree on a lot of issues, and uh, from everything I know about him, he's a godly man, he's gracious, he's kind. Um, I listen to some of his interviews on other podcasts, and so um, I'm not here to say anything about his character or about his methodology. Um, I, I just find it very interesting that in a Southern Baptist chapel he referenced one passage of scripture and then went on to give his testimony and then basically promote the Connect 316 organization and then talk about the dangers of Calvinism. And so that's what I want to address because I really think he used his position and I'm sure this was um, a coordinated effort with Paige Patterson at Southwestern as well as others that are in this group, David Allen, Malcolm Yarnell, Adam Harwood. Uh, there's two major Southern Baptist seminaries, Southwestern in New Orleans, that are more of the anti-Calvinistic seminaries within our convention. And I think Rick Patrick was maybe, who knows what was happened behind the scenes, but no matter how you slice it, he took this opportunity on this chapel message at Southwestern Seminary to basically do a drive-by um, critique of Calvinism, which I felt was not very fair. He did not deal with texts. He did not deal with theology per se. He listed off different categories of theology, and then he basically gave a drive-by, what's wrong with Calvinism, why we're right. And so he dealt with um, the theology, and then he dealt with the practical aspects of that. And so what I want to do on this podcast is basically interact with his statements, because I think it's very interesting. If anything, this shows what the other side is um, 
disagreeing with, what they find objectionable. And I think it's important for us to understand what the other side believes, what the other side is concerned about. And I I understand their concern. I legitimately understand their concern. Uh, They are traditional Southern Baptists who believe strongly in their doctrine. They believe strongly in their methodology. They believe strongly in their ecclesiology. And they have every right to as Southern Baptists. We are autonomous churches that have voluntarily cooperated together through the Baptist Faith and Message, through the cooperative program, through missions agencies, through local associations to partner together. So there is no outside pope. There is no outside ecumenical council. There's no entity, Southern Baptist or otherwise, that dictates what a local church must and should believe as a Southern Baptist church. We are autonomous in the sense that each church can define for itself what its statement of faith is, what it's going to believe, to what level it's going to participate, how it's going to give to missions. And that's the beauty of what it means to be Southern Baptist. We are not monolithic. And I think the traditionalist Southern Baptists want the Southern Baptist Convention to go back to the 50s and 60s where it was monolithic, where everybody had the same cookie-cutter theology, everybody used the same curriculum, everybody did missions the same way, everybody had the same methodology, and a lot of it's basically based upon tradition and how it's always been done. And so they have every right to want to have that be the way they want things to be. And I'm sure there are many churches still within our convention that are traditionalist Southern Baptists. But I also think there's probably a lot on the rise that are more Calvinistic, that are probably more um, driven by um, different uh, methodologies in the way that they do things. And so it's not monolithic. But their concern is, is that in the seminaries, especially Southern and Midwestern and Southeastern, and because of the Gospel Coalition and Together for the Gospel and Acts 29 and, and John Piper's ministry and um, others, Tim Keller and uh, just R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur, all of these uh, leaders, all of these movements that I think their biggest fear is that the younger generation is going to embrace the doctrines of grace, Reformed theology, and abandon traditional Southern Baptist identity. And I think that's a legitimate fear, and I understand that. I don't have any problem with the fact that they have that fear. Um, They have every right to have that fear. They have every right to have their own organization, Connect 316, to write books, to promulgate their view. I just am a little concerned that in a chapel message, this was given to seminary students, and also at the end of the message, it was highly endorsed by the president of the seminary, Dr. Paige Patterson. And so one of the things that is a little disturbing about what Rick Patrick says is that, well, I'll just let him speak for himself. So let's, we're going to take this in chunks. And so let's listen to this first portion of what he says about Calvinism being a Trojan horse. If we are not careful, a myriad of related beliefs and practices will enter our camp hidden within the Trojan horse of Calvinism. Okay, now what he's going to do is he's going to go into different types of uh, theologies 
that are related um, to the issue of what the traditionalists believe versus what the, the Calvinists would believe. And so let us listen to what he has to say. And the first area that he has is what we call patriology or the issue of the Father. In the interest of time, I will briefly mention, though not fully developed, the relationship of Calvinism to a few of these other theological categories. Patriology deals with the study of the Father, and particularly his love for all of humanity. Under Calvinism, he possesses a very weak love for the reprobate, reduced sometimes to the mere provision of rainfall upon the flowers of the unrighteous. If God has chosen, actively or passively, before the foundation of the world, to place the reprobate unconditionally into a category from which they can never possibly escape, then this is, as even Calvin admitted, a dreadful decree. That's why Dave Hunt wrote the book, wrote the book What Love Is This?, and much more recently, Jerry Walls has written, Does God Love Everyone? The subtitle reads, The Heart of What is Wrong with Calvinism. I will never forget the first time a Calvinist looked me straight in the eye and said, God doesn't love everybody. I was speechless. And frankly, that doesn't happen much. Now, obviously, this is a very uh, tertiary or, not, or quick treatment on the issue of God's love. And, and, and so we've dealt with this on other podcasts before. God, in his essence, is love. But we have to understand that that is an eternal love that God has always had. And it doesn't change. And it's immutable love. And God did, before the foundation of the earth... For no, or for love, the elect. The reprobate, he simply left in their sin, passed them over, and did not provide an intervention or grace to get them out of their state of sin. And so, just reading the Bible, you have to say that, Yes, God is love, but does God love everybody in exactly the same way? If your name is Esau, does God love you the way that he loves Jacob? Does God love Judas the same way he loves Peter? Does God love the goats the same way that he loves the sheep? Does God have a salvific, powerful, effectual love for those in hell the same way that he has a love for those who are in heaven? If you say that God does have an equal, omnibenevolent love for all people, then what you have is a frustrated God who tries to love people and they do not love him back. And so he's eternally frustrated in expressing love to those that will never love him back. And so God is an unhappy God because he's trying to love as many people as he can. And because of their free will, they're not loving him back. And so therefore, you have a frustrated God as opposed to the God of the Bible who chooses out of his sovereignty, to show love, to show mercy. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. I will harden who I will harden. Romans 9. 
And so this is a quick flyby of basically uh, trying to shock people into saying that we as Calvinists don't believe that, that God loves everybody. God loves the world in the sense that the world is not so big, but as D.A. Carson would say, the world is so bad in the sense that it's amazing that God would even love a sinful, fallen world. So yes, God is love. It's an eternal love that's expressed in His grace that He does not owe anyone, but He does choose to show to the elect, the reprobate, those that do not receive His grace, He simply passes over and does not provide atonement, does not provide grace, does not provide effectual calling, does not provide salvation for them. It doesn't as if God has to owe anybody salvation. The fact that God chooses to save anyone is an act of love. And so we wouldn't go around saying that, um, you know, God hates you and has a terrible plan for your life. Um, that's not an evangelistic ploy I would use. But on the same token, I wouldn't use an evangelistic ploy that goes to a person that says, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Because it starts out with a self-centered view of the person being the height of God's object of affection as opposed to the glory of God being the greatest thing that we need to start with, of who God is and His glory and His majesty and all of His attributes. And by the way, Dave Hunt's book, What Love Is This?, is a terrible book, full of terrible footnotes, terrible sightings, terrible argumentation, more straw men's, more misunderstandings. I was so frustrated with that book. Anybody that would recommend Dave Hunt's What Love Is This?, and, and you can probably talk to Dr. James White about this because he wrote Debating Calvinism with um, Dave Hunt as a, as a response to that book. And so if you want to see a poorly written book from an Arminian perspective that mischaracterizes Calvinism just for fun and for frustration, go read Dave Hunt's What Love Is This?, this. Next, he's going to deal with ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is the study of the church, and particularly the way we make decisions. The Baptist faith and message endorses congregational polity, where decisions are pastor-led, deacon-served, committee-worked, and congregation-approved. But our Calvinist friends are so fond of elder-led and sometimes even elder-rule forms of polity that one Calvinist pastor infamously attributed congregationalism to the devil himself. Now, I was not so much troubled that he preferred Presbyterian polity to Southern Baptist polity, but I was troubled that he attributed to Satan a polity I believe comes from God. Now, this is where I'm a little, um, not necessarily offended but a little confused because he talks about committees being the way that churches are supposed to be run and that the Baptist faith and message mentions committees. Um, the Baptist faith and message says that each congregation, this is a quote from the Baptist faith and message under the article under the church, each congregation operates under the lordship of Christ through democratic processes in such a congregation, each member is responsible and accountable to Christ as Lord. Its scriptural offices are pastors and deacons. While both men and women are gifted in service in the church, the office of pastor is limited to men as qualified in the scriptures. There's nothing in the Baptist faith and message that mentions that things are being done through committee. 
Now, our church is going through the process of redoing our doctrinal statement. We do now hold to the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, but we are, we're moving to more of a hybrid between the Second London Baptist Confession and the Baptist Faith and Message. We made this decision just because we felt like uh, the London Baptist Confession is so archaic in language that it's really hard to understand. A lot of the theology from the Second London Baptist Confession, we are moving into our doctrinal statement, but there are some good things in the Baptist faith and message um, as far as current issues. But one of the things that we did not like as elders is the whole issue of, of democratic processes. What, what does that mean? Does that mean that everybody uh, gets a vote? What, what, what is democratic processes? And so, um, yes, I think each church has the freedom to have the polity that they believe the Lord Jesus Christ would lead them to have based upon the scriptures. And so we have a conviction in our church that elder-led, not elder-rule, but elder-led is the chief or primary biblical example that we see in the scriptures, a plurality of elders who lead the church. And we are a congregationally approved church, we are going to have an annual church meeting this Sunday night. We will vote on our 2017 budget. We will hear ministry reports. Uh, when we do big type of issues as far as voting on staff members or voting on and going into indebtedness or, or major type issues, we have a vote. But our church does not have committees. Nowhere in the Bible do I see committees. Nowhere in the Baptist faith and message do I see committees. And yes... His interaction with James McDonald, he didn't mention his name, but James McDonald at Harvest Bible Church was the one who said congregationalism is of Satan. I think he's retracted that statement. I don't agree with that statement. I think that's an extreme statement. Um, I, I would never say that because I think the Bible does teach congregationalism, but it also teaches elder-led. And so uh, just because... Your Southern Baptist Church does not have 18,000 committees, and your Southern Baptist Church um, has elders. It shouldn't be um, said or argued that it's not a valid expression of biblical polity. Now let's go into his view of anthropology. Anthropology is the study of man, and especially the responsibility of man. Can man made in the image of God freely respond to the Holy Spirit's drawing through the gospel? I say yes. But many Calvinists would say no. In fact, Dr. Malcolm Yarnell once said, Calvinism vitiates anthropology. He's right. Now, I agree that I am unable to save myself, but I disagree that I am unable humbly to make the decision to accept Jesus' offer to save me. And obviously we disagree with him. We do not believe that man who is dead in sin and trespasses, who has a heart of stone, who is hostile to God in mind, who does not seek God, can freely respond to the gospel on their own. Now, once the Holy Spirit regenerates a lost person and liberates their will that's in bondage, then they freely respond in repentance and faith, which are gifts given in sovereign regeneration and effectual calling. But we do not uh, believe that mankind is simply neutral or um, basically in a state where they can freely respond that, the, that Adam's sin had, had no effect in the fall 
upon humans. John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. We've talked about this many, many times. It's the whole idea of ability versus permission. When Jesus says no one can come, he's speaking about ability. Dunamis is the Greek word there, which means power. No one has the inherent power in and of themselves to come to Christ. Why? Because we are dead in sins. We have hearts of stone. We are hostile in mind. We don't seek God. We, we, we hate God. And so God has to overcome that deadness. He has to overcome that stony heart. He does that through effectual regeneration. And once he does that, the will is liberated. The will freely comes. And then we respond in repentance and faith as gifts given to us. And we freely come to Christ. And so regeneration has to precede faith. That's where we strongly disagree with our traditionalist brothers on this. And this goes into the whole issue of um, harmatology when he talks about the doctrine of sin. Hamartiology is the study of sin and logically leads to the question of whether or not my inherited sinful nature also renders me guilty of Adam's sin so that I am born already guilty with implications for our view of depravity that we have already discussed. Now, he just fl flies by this really quickly, but that's a strong statement. This is the biggest issue that I have with the traditional statement. He's basically denying inherited guilt. He's basically saying, yeah, that what they will say is you have in inherited an inclination to sin. You do have a sinful nature, but Adam's guilt in the garden as our federal head, as our representative, what he did there... His guilt is not imputed to us so that when we are born, we are born guilty. We are born under condemnation. What they would say is you do not actually become guilty until you actually commit a sin. And you don't actually commit a sin until you reach the age of accountability. And then, and only then, after you reach the age of accountability, then you become guilty. Which really reverses the order of what the Bible teaches in Romans chapter 5, 12 and following. Because Adam sinned, we all sinned, his sin, his guilt is imputed to us the same way that when we become justified through faith in Christ, his righteousness is imputed to us. We did not do anything to um, attribute to Christ's perfect righteousness imputed to us the same way that we weren't there when Adam sinned, but his guilt was imputed to us anyway. And so there's this whole federal headship. You're either in Christ or you're in Adam. And every single person is born guilty. We have inherited the guilt from Adam and we're born under condemnation. And that's a huge change in the Baptist faith and message from 1925 to 1963. Uh, that was really one of the reasons why we um, as elders are looking at, our, at the doctrinal statement because we really have a problem with the way the Baptist faith and message um, talks about the issue of of sin, and, and I'm not even going to deal with the traditionalist statement because I think the traditionalist statement in and of itself, I think, is semi-Pelagian. They would say it's not. They would argue that it's not semi-Pelagian. I've studied that thing forward and backwards. I don't see how you can get away from the fact that, that it is semi-Pelagian in the sense that it denies imputed guilt. It, it almost denies original sin. But what the Baptist faith and message says is that this... 
Through the temptation of Satan, man transgressed the command of God and fell from his original innocence, whereby his posterity inherit a nature and an environment inclined towards sin. Don't like that. We've inherited a nature and an environment inclined towards sin. Which, if you're inclined towards sin, that means that you may not be inclined. You, you can choose to incline yourself one way or the other. It's not very strong. And then it says, therefore, as soon as they are capable of moral action, they become transgressors and are under condemnation. So you're only under condemnation once you're capable of moral action. And so, yes, we do believe that all babies that die in infancy or die in stillborn or die in miscarriages or die as aborted babies, they go to heaven. We strongly believe that. But we also believe that those babies still have inherited guilt and inherited sin from Adam and that the only way it's covered is through uh, the the cross of Christ. And so uh, the big question is, why do babies die? Why do babies... Death is the condemnation. Death is the curse. Death is the punishment. Why are babies dying and being a result of of the curse when they don't... Why are they suffering the curse of sin by dying if they don't have any any guilt? And so that's a a huge huge issue. Um, Let's talk about pneumatology. This was kind of a flyby. I don't know where he gets a lot of his information here. This was a pretty um, blanket statement. Pneumatology is the study of the Holy Spirit. And while there appears to be no direct logical connection, almost every observer of New Calvinism points to the surprising partnership between New Calvinism and the charismatic movement, a development so startling that even older Calvinists like John MacArthur have denounced it publicly. Eschatology, or the study of end times, in a similar vein, can point to a correlation between New Calvinists and post-millennialism, or at the very least, optimistic premillennialism like that espoused by John Piper. The point is not simply that salvation doctrine causes each of these distinct viewpoints, but rather that we find correlations and associations so that seemingly the Calvinists are more or less together on a broad spectrum of theological issues. Now, obviously, this is a blanket statement. He says it's a very extreme statement. Almost every observer of New Calvinism says that it's tied to the charismatic movement. Well, yes and no. Now, obviously, Wayne Grudem's systematic theology is very, very popular among Calvinists, and he is charismatic in his understanding of the gifts of the Spirit in the issue of revelation and prophecy. There are those that, like C.J. Mahaney and others, that are, more, that are you know, open to charismatic movement. But from what I'm seeing, like for example, I don't know of any Reformed Southern Baptist, any Reformed Presbyterian, PCA, um, any Reformed Lutheran or you know, Bible church type people that, that really hold to the extreme charismatic movement. Yes, there are those that are charismatic Calvinists, and, and, and I understand that. I am not one of them. Um, I, I am a cessationist, but I don't think that his, his um, argument is as big as maybe he means it to be. Now, I may just be not knowledgeable uh, of some of the partnerships I'm seeing. I mean, I know of Wayne Grudem's influence. I know of 
um, C.J. Mahaney. I know Mark Driscoll, when he was kind of in the movement, you know, he was he was kind of favorable to that. I think Matt Chandler may be that, and he's a Southern Baptist Calvinist. And so I guess, you know, there are some big-name Southern Baptists, but most of the people that I talk to um, aren't imbibing uh, the charismatic movement. We see this practically in our missiology or the study of missions. Generally, the harvest mandate challenges us to reach souls wherever they may be found so that if the fish are not biting on one side of the boat, we cast our nets upon the other. Go where you can reach the most souls. By contrast, the frontier mandate challenges us to reach souls where we have never reached them before. This mandate, though embraced by both sides, has special appeal to the Calvinist who views the Great Commission as God reaching the elect few from every people group, whereas a traditionalist might view the task more from a pure harvest mandate perspective. Frankly, balance is what we need here. And that is exactly what Dr. Robin Dale Hathaway calls for in his excellent Southwestern Journal article, A Course Correction in Missions, Rethinking the two percent threshold. Now, this is really where I struggle with this view because I am a strong proponent of unreached, unengaged people groups. We as a church have adopted an unreached, unengaged people group in India. 2007, we began praying. 2011, we went on our first mission trip. This past summer, we actually went with a pastor who's planted a church among these people, and they're worshiping in a congregation. We've seen them go from unengaged to to now being reached through the gospel. And that would never have happened if we had not have prayed and engaged. And thousands of Southern Baptist churches are trying to go to frontier missions where the gospel has not been heard. And his is more driven by pragmatism. You go where the fish are biting. You go where there's a harvest. You go where it's easy. It almost sounds like the whole philosophy we have with the International Mission Board of going to unreached people groups, he disagrees with. Now, societal giving versus cooperative giving, there's nothing biblical one way or the other about that. It's more of an issue of wisdom. Yes, we as a church, since we're Southern Baptist, we give to the cooperative program. We give 10% of our annual budget to the cooperative program. It goes through our state convention in Colorado, and then it's divvied out from there to the executive committee in Nashville, and then they divvy it out to the different entities, NAM, IMB, um, the seminaries, and so Traditionally, we as Southern Baptists go through that stream. But some of the newer guys, the younger guys, they don't trust the cooperative program. They don't trust their state conventions. And so they think that they can do missions better through societal giving, and that's their choice. Now, I understand, and I'm deeply embedded in the cooperative program. I I believe it's an ingenious way of, of getting things done, of pooling resources. It's really a great way for the smaller rural church to be a part of something bigger that they could never be a part of themselves. Uh, these mega churches that have big budgets, of course, they could possibly do societal giving. They can send their own missionaries. Uh, they can fund their own projects. They can do that. But the majority of Southern Baptist churches in our convention are small and are rural and can participate in cooperative programs. So I would agree with him that it's important and it's a good thing, not a biblical mandate, but a good thing for Southern Baptist churches to be part of the cooperative program if that's the way your church goes. But to argue whether frontier missions versus harvest missions, I have a little bit of a problem with that. 
The point is that salvation doctrine is significant because of its broad doctrinal implications. It may be that we are not merely debating between two soteriologies, but for all practical purposes, between two systematic theologies. Now, what he's going to do is he's going to move into the practical aspects of ministry. And so what we may do here is um, look at a, we'll look at this on another podcast. This is the theological aspects. And then on the next podcast, I'll probably have to break these up into two. Uh, He'll talk about the practical aspects of the different pragmatic or practical things that result when you, um, the difference between traditionalism and Calvinistic Southern Baptist or or, or Calvinism. So we will come back to this on our next podcast. Thank you for listening. Um, Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus until next time. And uh, please go to iTunes and give us a review and rating. I'd love to hear from you. Again, I'll enjoy the correspondence that we have. I try to get these podcasts in when I can, when I have some time. Um, But I do appreciate you listening. Have a great day in the Lord and keep your eyes fixed on Jesus.